events, cause and effect. We look at what went right and what went wrong, as we discover that many outcomes can be predicted, planned for, and even prevented. I'm John Chidgey, and this is Causality. Causality is part of the Engineered Network. To support our shows, including this one, head over to our Patreon page, and for other great shows, visit engineered.network today. Tenerife. On Sunday, the 27th of March, 1977, on the island of Tenerife, Canary Islands, two aeroplanes would collide, not in the air, but on the ground. Until the World Trade Center towers in 2001, it was the largest incident in aviation history. At the time, terrorists were trying to free the islands from Spanish rule. At 12.30pm that day, a terrorist bomb exploded at Gran Canaria Airport, planted by Fuseris Amadas Guanches, a separatist group that injured one person. An additional bomb was threatened to be present at the airport authorities chose to redirect all flights currently en route to Gran Canaria to their alternate airports. Many flights were diverted to the nearby Los Rodeos Airport on the island of Tenerife. Los Rodeos Airport is a relatively quiet airport, and whilst it could handle 747s landing and taking off, it was not accustomed to seeing planes of this size on a regular basis. The airport itself was 632 metres above sea level, and it consisted of a single runway running approximately east and west. Its proximity to Mount Tidi, a volcano that last erupted in 1909, has a peak of 3,718 metres or 12,198 feet above sea level, meant that the clouds would regularly roll down to the foothills from the summit, typically late in the day at certain times of the year. On the day of the incident, when everyone was landing, the skies were completely clear. The airport was originally opened to regular air traffic in 1941, and whilst the runway was lengthened to 2,400 metres, or 7,874 feet, in 1953, it had no ground radar installed. Sometimes it's referred to as surface movement radar. It's been widely employed since the 1950s, and it's employed at all major airports to assist in low visibility conditions or at night time. Although five planes were diverted to Los Rodeos, there were only two flights involved in this incident. The first of the two flights involved landed at Los Rodeos at 1.38pm. It was an overnight flight from Los Angeles that had an intermediate stop at JFK. Pan Am Flight 1736 was a Boeing 747-121 carrying 370 passengers and 16 crew. The flight crew consisted of Captain Victor Grubbs, First Officer Robert Bragg, and Flight Engineer George Warns. At 2.15pm, the second flight involved landed at Los Rodeos, KLM Flight 4805 from Amsterdam, and was also a Boeing 747, but Model 206B, with 234 passengers and 14 crew. The flight crew consisted of Captain Jakob Veltsen van Zanten, First Officer Klaus Mers and Flight Engineer William Schroeder. Los Rodeos Airport had only the single runway and a single taxiway, and it wasn't very large. It had a small control tower with not much of a holding area or apron, certainly not for that many jumbo jets, so it became very crowded on the ground very quickly. And the planes essentially created a traffic jam 
on the tarmac. The incident itself started after the flights had been waiting at the airport for some time. All the flight crews knew that it was only a short 25-minute hop by the air to Grand Canaria. Captain Van Zanten requested that the KLM Jumbo be fully refueled while they waited for permission to go through to Grand Canaria to save time. At 2.20pm, when the Pan Am flight had stopped in position, since the departure lounge was already full, with passengers from the preceding diverted flights, passengers on the Pan Am flight were not allowed to leave the plane. At 2.30pm local time, the police at Grand Canaria cleared the airport after searching for the second bomb and permitted those diverted flights to come back to Grand Canaria to land as originally planned in their flight schedules. Because the Pan Am flight was still full of its passengers, it was ready to leave essentially immediately. But it couldn't, because the KLM flight had arrived earlier, was being refuelled, and was blocking its path. The KLM passengers, on the other hand, had mostly deboarded, and the 35-minute refuelling procedure had already begun once clearance from Grand Canaria had come through, and since the planes were all parked on the taxiway, and there were no available connecting sections to the main runway that they could easily access, the Pan Am flight was blocked in. It couldn't reverse, and with the KLM physically blocking the only route back onto the main runway, they had no option but to wait for them to finish refuelling, passengers to reboard, and get out of their way. The Spanish authorities insisted that all planes currently landed at Los Rodeos stay put, just as the KLM flight was nearly finished refuelling, and hence closed a brief takeoff window. The KLM flight was further delayed when passengers were reboarding when a family of four went missing. In addition, a tour guide extracted their luggage from the KLM flight since they lived on the island, and decided to stay off the flight and get home a day earlier than they'd originally planned, as fortune would have it. That turned out to be a good choice. At approximately 10 minutes to 5pm, a light band of clouds began to drift down from the nearby mountain slopes, descending onto the runway, creating variable visibility. The clouds were patchy, and as minutes passed, they became thicker and more contiguous. At 4.56pm, the KLM captain requested permission to taxi for takeoff to the tower. At 4.58pm, the tower released the KLM jumbo to taxi. Their instructions to head down the runway, do a 180 degree turn, and enter position ready for final takeoff. With 248 passengers and crew on board, the KLM flight proceeded as directed by the tower to taxi back along the runway. By 5pm, the fog had reduced visibility to about 300 metres or 1,000 feet. But at this point, visibility was so bad that the tower could no longer see any of the planes that they were directing, nor could the planes see the tower, nor could they see each other. All flights and flight controllers were now fully reliant on radio communications. At 5.02pm, the control tower authorised Pan Am to taxi down the runway towards the third exit, then to pull off the runway and await further instructions. At 5.04pm, KLM entered takeoff position, while the Pan Am flight continued to taxi along the runway, searching through the clouds for the third exit, as directed by the tower. By this time, both the Pan Am and KLM flights had been delayed for three to three and a half hours from their original planned landing schedule at Grand Canaria. They were both understandably eager to leave. After a brief exchange with the tower regarding their ATC clearance, 
At 5.06pm, the KLM captain throttled up and began to roll forwards. At 5.06pm and 18 seconds, the tower instructed KLM to hold position, not realising they'd already begun to take off, with the Pan Am jumbo jet 1,400 metres ahead of them in the middle of the runway, unable to find the third exit. 45 seconds later, the Pan Am flight, with 394 passengers and crew on board, spotted the lights of the KLM plane rapidly approaching them through the clouds. Thinking as quickly as he could, the Pan Am captain pulled the throttle in a quick attempt to turn left and get out of the way of the oncoming plane, but five seconds was simply not enough time. And the KLM jet collided with the Pan Am at a speed of 290 kilometres an hour, 180 miles per hour. The visibility was so bad that the air traffic controllers heard the explosion, felt the vibration from the explosion, but could not see anything in the fog. Several attempts later, and the tower realised that they could raise neither plane on the radio. The KLM flight was partially off the ground at the point of impact and had torn the top portion of the Pan Am Jumbo from its fuselage. The impact put the KLM flight into a nosedive and it crashed back into the runway further down. The Pan Am Jumbo was thrown on its side and both 747s burst into flames. Passengers on the Pan Am flight rushed for their exits and holes in the fuselage wherever they could to try and get out and escape in those precious seconds following the impact. Only 61 people survived from the Pan Am flight. None survived from the KLM flight. It was the worst aviation disaster in history at the time, where 583 people died. The investigation was run by the Spanish Commission d'Investigation de Incidents de Aviation Civile, or CIA IAC. The representatives that assisted from the Netherlands included Franz Erhardt and from the United States included Bill Edmonds. The flight data recorders from both cockpits were quickly located, but the damage from the fire was so extensive that the initial investigation instead had to be driven by the air traffic controller tower recordings. Four minutes before the incident had occurred, the Pan Am flight had been instructed to get off at the third exit, C3. The tower counting them out quite specifically, one, two, three, third exit. The airport had a single runway and a single taxiway that ran in parallel. It was connected between the two by four exits. Each connection was slanted at an angle designed to allow planes that were landing to easily turn and get off the main runway. Therefore, two were slanted for easier exit for planes landing west-east, and the other two were easier for planes landing east-west. Given that the direction of the Pan Am was heading down the runway, exit C3 actually represented a reverse or acute angle of 148 degrees that would have been difficult, even in normal visibility, incredibly difficult, (laughs) if not practically impossible, in low visibility. Such a turn would have been very easy for a smaller plane to make that Los Rodeos was used to handling, but practically impossible for the largest passenger plane in the world at the time to make. The the tower's intention was perfectly clear, to send Pan Am down to the third exit, because this would clear the runway and then the Pan Am could continue down the taxiway as normal to reach its normal takeoff position, essentially drive itself around the traffic jam behind it. 
and then they could take off immediately once the KLM flight had departed. But the airport was so small and so irregularly used by larger flights that there were no markings or signs, illuminated or otherwise, for each of the exits, meaning the only way to know which exit was which was by counting them visually. The Pan Am flight had already unknowingly passed the third exit without realising it. And at the moment of the collision, the Pan Am was just before the fourth exit. They'd gone considerably further down the runway than the tower had intended. One minute and 23 seconds before the crash, the KLM plane had completed its 180-degree turn and the KLM captain started to throttle forward. The cockpit voice recorder, once it had been recovered, had the co-pilot say to the captain, we don't have ATC clearance. That's air traffic control clearance. He eased back on the throttle and in a rather annoyed voice replied with, yes, I know. Go ahead, ask. The first officer then requested ATC clearance. The response from the tower was for directions immediately following takeoff and their response included the word takeoff but did not include an explicit statement that they had been cleared for takeoff. The KLM first officer read back the instructions to the tower and ended with the statement, We are at takeoff. At 33 seconds before the collision, Captain Van Zanten at that point said to the crew, We're going. In the cabin. Not over the radio. The tower in the background was heard to respond with OK. Despite the non-standard language that had been used between the first officer and the control tower, technically no takeoff clearance was given to KLM, but the pilot took off anyway. So the radios. Being relied on radio communication generally isn't a big problem, but at times things can still go wrong. Normally, back and forth communication between two points is very effective, simple, and if miscommunications occurred, they're quickly rectified. It was now only 28 seconds before the collision when the air traffic controller, wanting to ensure the KLM flight understood that they had not been given takeoff clearance, the tower added over the radio, OK, stand by for takeoff. I will call you. At that exact moment, the Pan Am pilot chanced to transmit via his radio to the tower, warning them. We're still taxiing down the runway. Clipper 1736, which was the plane's designation. The KLM plane heard a three-second whining noise and both trans- because both transmissions occurred at the same time. The radios they're using were operating in simplex mode. Simplex means you push a button and speak into the microphone to transmit. And then when you release the button, you can receive and listen to whoever else is speaking on that channel. If there are three people having a conversation, in order to, for the other two to hear what was said, only one person can transmit at a time. If two people transmit at the same time, and both transmitters are of a similar range, distance, and power, the third person listening will hear what's technically referred to as a heterodyne, although more commonly it's referred to as doubling or cross-interference or standing on the other person's signal. In this specific case, the KLM plane couldn't hear either the Pan Am plane or the tower. 
They just heard a squeal and assumed it was a glitch or a fault with their radio equipment or their headphones. The first word from the tower is all that the KLM captain heard. The tower said, Okay, stand by for takeoff, I will call you. But the KLM captain only heard, Okay, followed by a squealing sound as the Pan Am pilot transmitted over the top of the rest of the message. Now, 24 seconds before impact, the tower asked the Pan Am to report when it was clear of the runway and the Pan Am captain responded saying they would report when they were clear. In the KLM cockpit, this was clearly audible to them and whilst the captain and co-pilot did not react, the flight engineer did react and asked the captain, is the Pan Am not clear? They're already taking off down the runway. So the flight engineer asked the captain, is the Pan Am not clear? The captain quickly responded with, what was that? The flight engineer repeated his question. The captain responded simply with, oh yeah. Implying, in his opinion, he believed that they were clear. Most likely not wishing to second guess the captain, the flight engineer let it go at that. The opportunity to stop takeoff was gone. And in the moments just prior to impact, when the KLM captain finally realized his mistake, then he was about to collide with the Pan Am jet, he pulled the nose up sharply, scraping the tail on the runway and forcing the 747 up into the air before it had reached optimal takeoff speed. Unfortunately, the number one engine scraped the leading side of the Pan Am fuselage as the Pan Am tried to turn out of the way. Despite the nose and front wheels clearing the Pan Am, the number one engine clipping the side was enough to bring the 747 straight back down again. Interestingly, the KLM captain had taken on 55,000 litres of fuel only a few hours before, weighing about 40 tonnes in an attempt to save time having to refuel later in Grand Canaria, which was their original schedule. Had they not done that, the reduced weight of the plane would most likely have allowed the KLM to just clear the Pan Am jet, despite all of that, even in those few moments prior to impact. It's very clear that there was a growing level of impatience in the cockpit recordings in the lead-up up to the incident. At one point, the KLM captain had expressed concerns about exceeding the number of hours he was allowed to work. Even after they took off, the KLM flight still needed to pick up another 300 passengers in Grand Canaria and had already been stuck at Los Rodas for three and a half hours, and he knew that the airline would then have to pay overnight accommodation for all the passengers on board. That's expensive and it's disruptive. Captain Van Zanten had been a pilot for 27 years and had accumulated 11,700 hours of flying time. So he was very experienced. In fact, he was in charge of the training simulator he was held in such high regard and was training KLM's new pilots. In the past six years, though, he had averaged just 21 hours of flying time per month and hadn't flown at all in the previous 12 weeks. When Van Zanten was in the training simulator, he would act as the the tower, as the ATC, and he would guide the training sessions as well, and that's common practice. One possibility put forward was something referred to as training syndrome, where the person tends to blur the lines between simulation and reality and develops a desensitization to risk perception. Following the incident, a ground radar was fitted at Los Rodeos Airport. 
A second airport was also built on Tenerife with newer equipment to handle the increasing traffic. International airline regulations were updated to exclude using OK or Roger to indicate transmissions were received, but rather to read back what was said to the tower to confirm that the message was correctly understood as well. The phrase takeoff is now only permitted to be spoken with the actual ATC clearance or the cancellation of that ATC clearance for takeoff. The cockpit hierarchy in aeroplanes has been shifted away from a hierarchical structure which was more traditional to one where decisions are made through a mutual agreement. Despite the technical contributing factors, KLM ultimately accepted responsibility for the incident and paid 110 million US dollars for property and personal damages with an average of 189,000 US dollars of compensation per victim. There were several root causes for this incident. And the first was clearly Captain Van Zanten. There was some influence of having too much time in a simulated environment and a lack of real-world, recent air flight time, plus impatience, having been stuck on the ground for as long as they were, short-circuited the captain's risk assessment of the situation. When queried about the safety of takeoff by one of his crew, he did not take their concerns seriously and pushed ahead regardless. The air traffic controllers. This wasn't heavily highlighted in the investigation, but why did the ATC send the Pan Am down the runway after the KLM in the first place? The most logical assumption is that they were trying to save time. By the time the KLM plane had taxied down the runway and reached the other end, then turned around and then taken off, the Pan Am would have needed to have waited an additional 10 minutes or so before it could repeat the same process, followed by the next plane and the next and the next, until all the planes had been cleared from the ground. It would have been a slower, but certainly a much safer approach, rather than trying to get a large 747 to make a difficult turn to get in behind the other 747 via the taxiway. At exit 3... Given the visibility issues and the lack of a ground radar, that's what I would have done. Impatience be damned. The flights had waited three hours already, three and a half for the first arrivals. Another 10 minutes waiting to take off isn't an issue. The Dutch investigators also noted that in the control tower recordings, the sounds of a soccer or football match was playing on the radio in the background of the ATC's radio transmissions. The tower controllers were most likely also distracted, even if only subtly. The radios themselves were clearly the biggest contributor to this incident. Devices can be fitted to radios to prevent the doubling of transmissions. They work, very simply, by monitoring an FM carrier on the frequency they're listening to. If they detect that a carrier is present, then they'll prevent the radio from keying, even if the push-to-talk button is depressed. That is, the radio will not cut out the receiver at all and will prevent the speaker from speaking over the top of someone else. A common unit made by the BAE, British Aerospace, was called the Contran and had been fitted to many air traffic control towers around the UK and some aeroplanes starting in 1995. Before you think that's a recipe for easy radio jamming, there is a user override for that instance. But anti-blocking units for radios are recommended by the FAA and CAA in the US and UK respectively. However, they are not mandated. 
The problem specifically with the Contran system was more about its implementation, and it was considered to be unreliable, as noted by an avionics mechanic describing the Contran in a 2005 forum post. And I quote, This system was so bad that we just ended up removing the box on every aircraft because it was causing VHF transmission snags. We have now started taking this Contran system out and wiring the aircraft to use its the inbuilt stuck microphone system in VHF transceivers. So the concept is sound, but the implementation of the Contran unit clearly needs refinement. Other options include upgrading the radio system used on all aircraft to use a digital transmission system with inbuilt group call capability, but such a leap would be extremely expensive to implement and would need to be implemented at all airports and in all aircraft to be successful. And finally, the airport's design. It was clearly not suitable for poor visibility conditions. The lack of exit signage was a terrible omission that would have cost very little money to add and would ultimately have allowed the Pan Am to exit, albeit probably ungracefully, much earlier and have prevented the collision from happening. Moving around aircraft at an airport has been a growing problem for many decades and improvements in instrumentation, visual aids like lighting, signage, ground radar have all made it easier to avoid collisions on the ground. Now, these have been added incrementally as smaller planes in the past had had near misses or incidents themselves, but because they were smaller, there were less fatalities or injuries. Even visual flags and paddles were replaced by radio towers and radio communication. We built these technologies to prevent incidents, but what happens when those technologies aren't available? we fall back to radio once again, since it works in all visibility conditions until it doesn't. If the lowest, most basic form of ground aircraft communication can be easily blocked, then mandating good radio blockers must surely be the obvious choice. The alternative to developing better communication systems for those situations where radio is the only method of communication available is to push for more redundancy in ground radar instruments instrument guidance systems, and so on, and mandating a higher level of instrumentation being fitted at all airports, irrespective of their size. If they can handle larger planes, then they should install them. Having said that, that would cost even more. The convenience of digital telephone exchanges with pulse dialing eventually made analogue telephone exchanges obsolete. How long will it be before we see better radio systems deployed to aircraft and air traffic control towers? to handle voice communications and how many other incidents need to happen before they do. If you're enjoying Causality and want to support the show, you can. Like some of our backers, Ivan, Daniel Dudley and Chris Stone. They and many others are patrons of the show via Patreon and you can find it at patreon.com slash johnchigi, all one word. So if you'd like to contribute something, anything at all, it's very much appreciated. This was Causality. I'm John Chigi. Thanks for listening.